Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show. It originally aired way back in August 6th of 2014 here on Connecticut Public Radio. Mr. President, maybe you should just come clean. I can't do that, Ron. It's Greg. Too many of these sons of bitches are out to get me. I want you to take what we have on this and deep-six it. Am I clear? Yes, Mr. President, but we're concerned that Pazniokas has something. Who? Pazniokas. Who the hell is Pagliopas? He's a journalist, Mr. President. Commie beard? I know the f*** you mean. He's out to get me. They all are, Stan. The Middleton people with their bubbly sangria and their scallion cilantro summer salad. They think they're better than me. I didn't grow up that way. We ate pieces of a cloth coat and we were happy to have anything. Mr. President, I think we're getting a little far afield. And I don't want that Jeff Cohen digging around in my garbage either. The public radio types with their French press coffee mugs and their messenger bags. They have no idea what goes on up here on the wall. Mr. President, I've crafted a statement for you to give. I think it makes a clean breast of things without admitting too much. Let me see. On or about July 17, 2014, a car belonging to John Dankowski was dinged when the door of a car belonging to me was opened in a manner intended to protect the presidency. Alan, I can't say that. It puts me in the soup. What about, uh, I can say categorically that our investigation indicates that no one on my staff, no one in this administration presently employed was involved in this very bizarre car dinging accident. That's not the truth. I don't give a what happens. I want you to stonewall, plead the Fifth Amendment, cover up, or anything else, if that'll save me, Throckmorton. Yes, Mr. President. Here's what I want you to do. Go and get the other one, the other little bastard with the beard, Trevor Flabbergaster. Tucker Ives. Right, take him out to Camp David, and don't let him leave until he's implicated himself, okay? And now you can turn the tape machine back on. It's been on, Mr. President. <laughs> Rosemary, get in here! The rest of you listen to this show about a third-rate burglary. And now he's still waiting in the parking garage for Bob Woodward, Colin McEnroe. I am. I'm prepared to tell Bob Woodward everything I know. And I've been standing here in this parking garage for 40 years almost. More than 40 years, I guess it would be. Um, So now that I'm into it, I realize I have no idea how to talk about Watergate, even though it it consumed uh, a portion of my, my early life, my life as an adolescent and and my first years in college, because it really is one of these stories that flaps around so much that it doesn't really have a beginning and a middle and an end. We think it does, but it doesn't. However, what we're going to do really today is to talk about how to talk about something like Watergate, how difficult it is to talk about it, and how the way we talk about it changes over time, and, and various efforts that are made to throw some kind of narrative bridle over this bucking bronco of a story. So um, before we do any of that, and before I introduce our guests, we did send two of our finest uh, interns out onto the street. Uh, Britt Hill and Allison Ehrenreich uh, roamed the streets of somewhere, uh, asking people what they remember about Watergate. What do you remember about Watergate? Nixon. I would say people still think he's a like a dirty liar, but I think we've started realizing that politicians are kind of all like that, and it's just whether or not they get caught. The Watergate Hotel, you know, the uh, phone tapping. Richard Nixon was involved. 
guy broke into an office, he stole some papers, and he called himself, I don't know, a little before my time. Um, I know, I guess I know a decent amount, of, amount about it as much as somebody who was born a decade after the Watergate scandal happened would know. Nothing. <laughs> All right, uh, in just a little while. By the way, I think that's pretty typical, what you just heard, but um, it's not for me to say. It's for our guests, really. In a little while, you'll meet Ed Gray. Uh, he's One of the things we'll talk about today is sort of living memory and then living memory as it's passed on to others. Uh, Ed Gray is the son of uh, former FBI director uh, L. Patrick Gray, and he's the co-author of In Nixon's Web, A Year in the Crosshairs of Watergate. You're going to meet him in a little while. Um, he would be one of those figures that if you uh, didn't live through Watergate, you might not remember or know. I'm talking about L. Patrick Gray, uh, but we'll come to that in just a second. It just so happens that our two guests here at the start of the show are two writers who I can genuinely say I have just admired their work so much, and it has uh, made uh, left a, a very good mark on me over time. Uh, Thomas Mallon is with us. He's a novelist and critic, author of many novels, including my beloved Henry and Clara, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other novels, most of which I've read and all of which I've enjoyed when I have read them. Uh, his most recent, uh, Watergate, uh, is in fact a, a novelistic retelling of the story. Uh, he is joining us from the studios of NPR in Washington. Um, and then Michael Shudson. Michael Shudson's uh, book, uh, Watergate in American Memory, uh, how we remember, forget, and reconstruct the past is a book which I have lugged from job to job, from place to place. I wouldn't uh, dream of trying to talk about Watergate without it. I would add to that uh, that his other work uh, is of a similar caliber. Uh, I I actually think that nobody should try to write about American elections or politics without reading The Good Citizen, which is his history of American civic life and, and sort of how we have come to believe what we believe about things like voting. He's a sociologist and historian and professor of journalism at the Columbia University Graduate uh, School of Journalism. hope I got that right. Uh, and so we're going to begin here. We're going to finally actually start talking about this. And Thomas Mallon, I'm going to start with you. And I'm going to um, quote to you one of your fellow novelists who uh, attempted to do a similar thing, and that's Don DeLillo, uh, just in the way that your book is a very interesting retelling uh, and, and necessary retelling of the Watergate story. DeLillo, as we know, retold the story of the Kennedy assassination in a, in a book called Libra. And at one point, one of his uh, protagonists, uh, a CIA agent who's trying to make some kind of sense of this enormous midden of of information and documentation and, and and analysis and forensic detail he talks about what the what a conspiracy really is he says it's a rambling affair that succeeded in the short term due mainly to chance deft men and fools ambivalence and fixed will and what the weather was like and I sense a little bit of that approach in your novel, Watergate, Thomas Mallon, the sense that we want to see it as this coherent narrative, but really it's sort of a bunch of people kind of bouncing off each other in ways that uh, ultimately ruined lives and and tore down the reputation of a president. I think that's true. I think that there's a great deal of accident and fate that operates in history. I think this is one of the reasons that conspiracy uh, believers um, who don't want to believe in uh, those things, accident and fate, are, are so tenacious. But uh, I think they often upset the apple cart. And uh, I think things happen for reasons that are preposterous. And uh, Watergate, I think, uh, is one of them. There certainly was a deliberate crime that was committed uh, in Watergate. 
uh, by a small original conspiracy that almost certainly, and even John Dean will agree with this, did not include Richard Nixon. But then the conspiracy to cover it up grew and grew and grew and grew. And uh, what I've always tried to do in fiction is show how political events, catastrophes and so forth, affect people personally. Uh, you know, there's that phrase, um, the personal is political, an old 60s uh, phrase. I, I think in some ways my um, mantra for writing historical fiction has been the political is personal. Try to show um, uh, what it does to individuals, not um, not try to rewrite history in fiction, not uh, try to show, uh, you know, an alternate history as uh, some novels do, have the South win the Civil War, things like that, but show what might have happened in addition to what we have actually know, things that happened within the cracks. So um, we're going to add Michael Shudson to this conversation right away, but I'm going to ask you a Michael Shudson question. I mean, obviously, um, why did you write this novel? Well, you wanted to write a novel. It's one of the things you do. You write novels. You write novels that often feature real historical people in them. But Michael Shudson, uh, at least in his pursuit of uh, of the way that we understand um, Watergate and collective memory, would want to know, what else did you want to do, uh, Thomas Mallon? What, did you have some general purpose beyond the fact that you just write novels the way people climb mountains? Uh, did you have some general purpose in, in framing Watergate any particular way? I had no set moral thesis, uh, no, uh, which I think is deadly for any kind of fiction, historical or otherwise. One is likely to emerge, as you write, I think, you know, a message, um, which sounds sort of pompous, but nonetheless, it, it does sort of bubble up as you actually work. And I, one of the things that I wanted to do uh, was to show how uh, certain relatively minor figures uh, may have experienced Watergate, and then also to show a somewhat different view of the Nixons themselves, uh, especially Mrs. Nixon, who was not the plastic pat of American caricature, was a much more interesting, much tougher person than that. Uh, and to some extent, Nixon himself, who was multidimensional, had a tremendous dark side, but was a man of enormous uh, political gifts, even intellectual gifts to some extent. He would not have interested me, uh, you know, if he was just a rubber Nixon mask, if he was some cardboard villain. Uh, that wouldn't have appealed to me as a novelist. So I was trying in a way to bring out different dimensions of them from the usual ones uh, and also to uh, show some of these minor characters, but above all to um, entertain uh, readers. Uh, it, it, there are comic aspects to the book, although I wouldn't call it a comedy, but fundamentally uh, to tell uh, a good story and let the reader discern whatever messages might be there. Michael Shudson, as you listen to this, um, uh, Thomas Mallon's novel, Watergate, a novel, came out, I think, exactly 20 years after your uh, your historical book about Watergate in, in collective American memory. Uh, yours was in 1992. His was in 2012. You know, even in your book, 20 years before his, you're exploring this question. One of the things you explore is how many books can there be about Watergate? I think you um, invoke Russell Baker, who at one point had a column about uh, a book called The Last Watergate Book that was written by Richard Nixon's masseur or somebody like that. Um, and and uh, one sense is that the answer is there'll never be a last Watergate book, right? We're still so somehow or other processing this, like, like Russian nesting dolls, stories within stories within stories. We're still trying to figure out what actually this this story is. Are you surprised to find out that a major American novelist in 2012 was writing a Watergate novel? 
Um, I, I was surprised. Um, I, I read it, too, and, uh, it, and it works wonderfully as entertainment. I, um, I enjoyed every second of it. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I think it works I mean, as, as a novel because Thomas Mellon um, made it his, his own. I mean, it, it, you know, if, if you know nothing about Watergate, I, I would think it would work um, well. It's, it's a very entertaining, interesting book that to have lived through Watergate uh, just made it additionally delicious um, uh, as you as names came back um, into focus that you hadn't thought much about you, and you vaguely remembered just because they were at the edge of scenes of, of the Watergate investigation itself. Um, Thomas Mallon, one of the things that we're going to talk about here a little bit is this whole question of, of living memory. And, you know, every year somebody dies, right? Somebody dies who was a, a key figure in Watergate. Howard Baker uh, died recently. That means that Lowell Weicker here in Connecticut, I think, is the only surviving member of the Watergate uh, Senate Committee. I think I'm correct about that. But um, and, and in writing this, um, how much did that factor for you become a factor for you? How much did you care whether certain people were either alive or not alive or and therefore either prepared to dispute or not prepared to dispute things that you said? Well, I, I was usually glad if I discovered they were dead because it always – I mean whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, that's going to give you a much freer hand. Um, there are a few living principles of the Watergate scandal who are still around. Uh, John Dean, who's just written a new book. Gordon Liddy uh, is still around. I think he's still on the radio and I see him on television commercials uh, and a few others. Uh, Woodward and Bernstein uh, on the uh, journalistic side of it are still there. I didn't want to focus on them because uh, – not really just because they were living and, uh, you know, I would have to worry about their reactions to things. But they were all people who had told their own stories, had written their own books. Uh, it's true that the number of books is absolutely enormous. I mean, uh, this is one of the only projects I've ever worked on where I wished there was less material to consult. I mean, you have the tapes. You have all of the transcripts of the investigations and uh, you have this shelf – shelves of memoirs that uh, just about everybody wrote, sometimes just to pay their legal bills. They were writing uh, memoirs before uh, even the resignation. But um, so, uh, you know, as a novelist, you do want a free hand. You operate different from a historian. A, a historian or biographer will say, you know, at this moment, it is not unreasonable to think that Richard Nixon might have thought, whereas if you're a novelist, you just go ahead and have him think it. You just go ahead and have him say it. Um, but uh, and not that I want to discourage people from reading my novel. <laughs> I don't. But uh, I would urge people um, like those people you interviewed uh, on the street at the beginning of the program, uh, people who really want to know uh, a book, uh, uh, know what happened in Watergate. I would urge them to read books like Michael's book uh, first, um, because uh, as I say in one of the afterwards to one of my novels, uh, in fact, I think it's Henry and Clara, that one you mentioned, uh, you know, it's important to remember that nouns always trump adjectives. 
And uh, in the phrase historical fiction, fiction is the noun. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I'm always a bit leery when people come up to me and they say, oh, I learned so much history from your book. Uh, I always want to say, well, be careful because, uh, you know, some of it's been manipulated and uh, it's been put through uh, the mill of fiction and uh, the result is very different. I'd, I'd be horrified if my book was the only book that um, somebody uh, read <laughs> who was interested uh, in Watergate. And would you be horrified also, and this this will lead us back to Michael Shudson quite nicely, would do you feel there's some kind of obligation to keep this story alive and, and for people to remember? I mean, does it matter if 10 years from now, when it's the 50th anniversary, I mean, we go out in the streets and people even have less of a clue of what Watergate was? Do, will that matter to you? Do you think it's important for the United States or for history or for whatever? Is that for me? That yeah, it's for you. And then I'm going to go over to Michael Shudson about this because it's right up his alley. I'm not sure it matters more than a lot of other events that Americans don't know much about. Uh, you know, if you quiz them on the Constitution, if you quiz them on uh, events of the Civil War, Second World War, um, they might know uh, even less. But certainly I think Watergate uh, has uh, a kind of relevance. It has a, a kind of relevance in dealing with the psychology of uh, all sorts of people who get involved uh, in politics. And I also think uh, it, the question uh, that sometimes proceeds from the one you're asking, uh, will there ever be another Watergate? And my answer to that would be absolutely yes. Uh, it won't involve burglary. Uh, when you go back to the scandal, which seemed so high tech at the time, bugging devices, tape recordings, whatever, you know, it now seems very primitive. Uh, and uh, and yet uh, the uh, impulse to spy on your opponents uh, remains evergreen among politicians. And I think there uh, most certainly will be another Watergate, but it will take, you know, an electronic form. I mean, one of the things I know is that uh, Richard Nixon would have loved the Internet. Uh, it uh, <laughs> it was right up his street. I mean, he um, uh, the <laughs> connection from one thing to another, the ability to furrow in, to hack in. To do, uh, Nixon was a great aggregator of information and a great processor of it. So uh, I think um, Watergate is is useful still to know about because uh, it may well prefigure something as big or even worse. Well, you know, actually, uh, Thomas Mallon, you've led me to a different question to ask Michael Shudson, uh, that whole question of will there ever be another Watergate? And Michael Shudson, it depends, I think, on what we mean by Watergate and what we think Watergate is. This is something you explore in the book. For some people, it's the story of this horrible man, this modern-day Richard III, this guy who got into office and did these terrible things that were would have been previously unthinkable. And for a lot of other people, it's the story of the imperial president itself, the fact that the American presidency wasn't what people thought it was, hadn't been for a long time what people thought it was. And and I, w I would wonder whether it would be possible for there to be that kind of a Watergate now, because, in fact, over the last 40 years, people have grown even more accustomed to the notion that the American presidency wasn't what people thought it was, say, in the in the era that preceded Richard Nixon. What's your reaction to that? Well, I'm, the the general question here about w could there be another Watergate, I, I, I actually think there was. Um, uh, it was called Iran-Contra at the time um, in the Reagan administration. Um, and it, it, was an, it was another Watergate in the sense that um, it was the president and people very close to the president uh, 
acting without normal uh, congressional approval and without public uh, oversight uh, and without media attention, um, uh, the the Iran Contra um, affair was was um, broken and became public because of a weekly Lebanese magazine that um, uh, revealed it. Uh, it was not the American press, uh, and um, it came off in the end as uh, less cataclysmic than Watergate, I think only because it was about foreign policy and and the presidency and the, the president are is just granted by the public in general and and by you know constitutional precedent more leeway uh, to uh, run things um, as he chooses. Um, uh, even so, um, I, mean, I, I don't think we've had another domestic um, Watergate um, in, in which the president or his associates or both um, are involved in, in, um, in, in really interfering with the normal electoral process um, in a whole series of um, what were famously called at the time dirty tricks. Um, so I uh it it can repeat itself it has in some ways repeated itself at at the time i mean the year or two after watergate there was great concern in the congress to um remember watergate legislatively because they knew people wouldn't remember it in their own individual minds so it just um I'll stop this ramble in a, in a moment here, but um, uh, Senator Weicker um, of Connecticut at the time um, urging legislative reform said, um, this is 1975, um, the American people will forget it is not a hard political issue anymore. The issues will fade away in the distance. We can sit here and we can remember what has happened and we will make sure it will not happen again. But what about those children who are unborn and 50 years from now have had no relationship whatsoever with these events? Well, what, you know, we're, in, in fact, people didn't, for the most part, understand Watergate even at the time very well. Um, and, and it, of course, it's disputed. Um, uh, certainly the details of it are disputed. Um, but it did fade. It, it was a Washington affair. It wasn't, it wasn't a war that people experienced. Um, in their own communities or or homes, because um, their fathers or brothers or sisters went off to to battle, um, uh, it, it it took place within the the Washington Beltway, and it was it was remote. It was interesting. Um, it, it was theatrical, but it was remote from most people's everyday lives. You know, one of the things that your book actually points out is that in polling at the time, uh, the rest of America seemed more concerned about the oil crisis and the rising price of gas uh, than they did about uh, Watergate. Although I think also as things kind of unfolded on television and people began watching these proceedings, uh, Watergate began to 
contest for people's attention in in a slightly different way anyway, um, as a story maybe. I actually remember my, my father, who had been a lifelong Goldwater Republican, uh, or at least a re- Republican with eventual Goldwater leanings, uh, watching the hearings and saying just out loud, muttering to himself, these people are evil, they're evil. I mean, it absolutely uh, changed his, his outlook. He became politically a very different person as a result of Watergate. But um, uh, Michael Shudson, I wonder... Senator Goldwater. <laughs> Senator Goldwater, right. So, uh, Michael Shudson, I want to ask you sort of a follow-up question to that. All right, so you mentioned Iran-Contra, and I remember Iran-Contra well enough to know that really at that point, Watergate really was this kind of benchmark of wrongdoing so that uh, so that things tended to get compared to it. Uh, so when there were debates about Iran-Contra, one of the ways it would be debated was, well, was it as bad as Watergate? No, it's not as bad as it was Watergate. Oh, yes, it is. It's just as bad as Watergate. So Watergate sort of stood for bad, and then things were either just as bad or worse or better or whatever. And that probably continued to Iraq gate, which people really barely remember, but even got a gate attached to it and, and maybe on into Whitewater and maybe on to the Monica Lewinsky uh, situation for Bill Clinton. But I think as we moved into this new century, that I think Watergate as a benchmark, as something against which another scandal could be measured, did begin to lose a little bit of its power in that regard. How, how would you react to that statement? I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I think it, I mean, it, with Iran-Contra, which was just a dozen years later, it, it was absolutely over and over and over again. Um, is, how is this like? How is this unlike um, Watergate? It was very much the framework. And, uh, and Watergate at that point still had such um, a hold, at least for um, Washington and key decision makers on, on the political imagination that, um, that and, and you can make an argument, and some people did at the time, that um, Iran-Contra did not get treated with the seriousness it it by rights deserved um, because it was being uh, compared to this cataclysm of a constitutional crisis. Um, and I, I, that that's not going to happen again. I, um, Watergate is is too far in the past. Um, Watergate's also, uh, in some ways, too too complicated. Um, uh, if you get into the details of it, uh, to make a very um, useful comparison. It, it's it's only it's only a kind of broad metaphorical comparison, mostly in that in the way it's changed our language, and, and we have this gate suffix. Um, we do, uh, it gets used all over the world. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with more Thomas Mallon, uh, more Michael Shudson uh, a little bit later also. Uh, we'll be talking about Watergate uh, today, often in terms of people and, and how people either curate or besiege certain kinds of memories. You'll talk to, we'll talk to his son uh, who has uh, tried to address some of the uh, injustices he feels were directed at the memory of his father. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show that originally aired way back on August 6th, 2014, here on Connecticut Public Radio. All right, we are back. Uh, Let me tell you who we're talking to. 
And we're talking to Thomas Mallon. Uh, he's a novelist and critic. Uh, he's known for novels like um, Dewey Defeats Truman and uh, Henry and Clara and uh, most recently Watergate, a novel. Uh, and he's joining us from the NPR studios in Washington. Michael Shudson uh, is a sociologist and historian. Uh, his indispensable book about Watergate is called Watergate in American Memory. Uh, and the subtitle is How We Remember, Forget, and Reconstruct the Past. In a little while, we'll also talk to Ed Gray. He's the son of Pat Gray, uh, the former uh, FBI. FBI chief also involved uh, in ways that probably uh, he didn't want to be uh, in Watergate. So Thomas Mallon, you attempted to tell this story uh, in, in the form of a novel. You did tell the story in the form of a novel. But I guess what I want to know is, as you sat down to, to tell it that way, did you feel ultimately as though you have enough of a grasp of this weird, sprawling, octopus-like story so that you could sit down with a, a 22-year-old person today and in you know two or three minutes explain Watergate to them? Do you feel like you know what this story is? Uh, not completely, <laughs> not perfectly <laughs> by any means. Uh, I mean, the book actually comes with a cast of characters, you know, a long list of the dramatis personae uh, in the front because uh, I, I think readers actually, including readers who lived through it, need to refer back to that at times because uh, the cast of characters ultimately grew so large and this is a story that took, you know, more than two and a half years to unfold, uh, really three or four, because Watergate has its roots in other things within the Nixon administration. And um, it was, uh, to some extent, epic. Uh, to some other extent, uh, it was claustrophobic. Uh, as Michael was saying, it was a Washington story to a great extent. And its ramifications uh, were huge, but the things that it actually involved, the actual wrongdoing, was sometimes so small, so petty, so trivial. Uh, Pat Nixon in my book uh, thinks at one point Watergate was enormous, colossal, and it was nothing. And um, I think one thing, too, uh, to go back to what you were talking about with Michael a few minutes ago, I think it's also important not to overestimate Watergate's importance in American history and Watergate's uh, relevance to uh, political life today. I don't think that uh, ultimately uh, what happened uh, in terms of Watergate crimes disrupted the electoral process of 1972. Uh, and I do think what was at issue, I'm writing about the, the novel I'm working on right now is about the late Reagan years and Iran-Contra figures largely in it. And I do think what was at issue in Iran-Contra was much more serious than what was at issue in Watergate, much more fundamental about uh, the balance of power between the presidency and uh, the Congress. I think another real difference between those two scandals, why did Iran-Contra recede and why did Reagan survive, whereas Watergate, if it was less serious, why did that bring down Nixon, has a lot to do with the personalities of the two men. The public was prepared to accept an apology from Ronald Reagan, which he ultimately delivered. Um, he didn't deliver it as soon as uh, many people wanted to, and they were prepared to accept his excuse that uh, he um, was confused about it and didn't uh, really uh, know the full implications of what he was doing. That's an excuse that no one would ever have accepted from Richard Nixon, who had the persona of a prosecutor who had the persona of somebody who was always on top 
uh, of details. It had also to do with the temperament uh, of the two men. Nixon and Reagan are in touch with each other quite a bit during the fall of 1986. Uh, They're on the phone. Pretty often, Reagan valued Nixon's advice. And one of the things that I think is poignant and interesting uh, is in the early days of Iran-Contra, late in 86, well before the investigations are fully underway uh, in 87 uh, within the Congress, Nixon's advice to Reagan is to apologize, to get it behind him. Uh, In other words, do what I failed to do um, early on, take responsibility for it and move ahead. Once Reagan did that, uh, to a great extent, uh, any impetus to get rid of him um, uh, began to collapse. We're talking to uh, Thomas Mallon uh, and to Michael Shudson. Uh, we're going to be taking some phone calls, and in a second we will add to this conversation uh, Ed Gray, who's the son of Pat Gray. Uh, my mind is going so many different places. I may not be able to phrase this next question. But, um, but Michael Shudson, it seems to me one of the really interesting things about the, the post-Watergate story of Watergate is this question that you explore in the book of who curates it, right? Who, who gets to tell it? Who has to tell it? And, and for a while, the answer is everybody. And, and one of the things that I've noticed recently, and it reminds me a little bit of, of the dictum that as things die out, uh, there's, a, there's an even bigger effort to kind of celebrate them and honor them or make a, a big deal out of them among certain people. These days, I, I, I saw, I saw um, Bob Woodward on stage a couple of years ago. Um, he mentioned while on stage that he still keeps Watergate tapes in his car and he listens to them as he's driving around Washington. Uh, John Dean was uh, on, on this radio station uh, sometime within the last six months or so, and he's kind of doing kind of his equivalent of, of, of Buffalo Bill's uh, Wild West show where he just goes around and, and, and gives these multimedia presentations about Watergate. And you realize that now it does seem as though there's this kind of rear guard of people who, for one reason or another, have a real investment in this story. And, and, and they're starting to seem a little bit uh, superannuated. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's something about this now that it, it does seem more like museum curation and less like the living embodiment of history. And I, does it make you think that, once again, we're coming to a terminus, to an end of the energy of this story? Um, y- yes, I, uh, I I think we are. You, you know, as I was looking back at this in in preparation to talk with you today, I I, I was struck in the immediate post Watergate um, year or two as as the Congress was considering a variety of uh, proposals to keep a closer eye on uh, misdeeds in the executive branch of government, um, that they were, you know, I I was writing this book to uh, to confront some issues about how societies in general uh, remember their past, what what is cultural memory, is there such a thing as collective memory, and so on. And I, I was quite struck by the members of Congress who were who were dealing with exactly that question. They, some of them said, well, you know, we, we could be, um, th- this was a really unusual circumstance, and if we're going to pass laws based on this weird um, mess of a, of a scandal, um, we may be passing laws that could have um, negative consequences and really not apply to anything that, um, uh, like 
Watergate, and there probably won't be something exactly like Watergate. So we're going to we're going to write the wrong laws," said some, and others said, "Well, that could be, but we have to do something." This this was a a, a, a real crisis, and if we don't do something, we know that individual memories are not going to keep these lessons in mind. Uh, you know, the, um, we went through this, two two years of it in Washington, more than two years, um, and um, our children are not going to have that same experience. Why should they? Um, so uh, who, who curates this over time? Um, Watergate is, in a way, it, it's remembered not by individuals. It's it's remembered by language. Um, that great suffix "gate." Uh, it, it's remembered by other kinds of language. What uh, what did he know, and, and when did he know it? Um, uh, dirty tricks, deep six, all, all these things. Some of those are passing already, but um, um, but. Our common language is a is a crucial form of memory, and Watergate has um, has a still a, a strong legacy there, and and in some laws, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't um, um, minimize the importance of um, uh, the Ethics in Government Act and revisions of the Freedom of Information Act that uh, would not have happened without. Watergate um, or the Inspectors General Act of um, 1978. These were all there was a there was a, a a range of legislative efforts to say we have to hold in our common legal system a memory that individuals are are simply not going to be able to do themselves. I'll tell you one phrase that did survive, and, and it, because it's so useful, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. That That is a trope that probably will, it may even outlive live the, gate, the, the, the trope of the gate suffix to things, um, uh, maybe just because it's so incredibly true. Yeah, you're, you're right. That, that's that's a, been a very enduring one. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to have more Michael Shudson, more Thomas Malin, and you're going to meet Ed Gray, co-author of In Nixon's Web, A Year in the Crosshairs of Watergate. There was a big committee to elect the president I'll tell you now, they were a smooth group Well, they broke into Watergate and tapped people's phones The FBI and CIA would not leave folks alone The people in the White House were bursting with pride When the votes were all counted, it was a big landslide The USA bought a new used car you're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show that originally aired way back on August 6th, 2014, here on Connecticut Public Radio. They say G. Gordon Liddy would hold a hand over a candle longer than anyone else could stand to. He said the trick is not minding. Well, I've been holding my hand over a candle this whole time. What's that? His candle was actually lit? Oh. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Katie Pikus and Britt Hill. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ron Ziegler. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff breaking into the Brookings Institute and leaving piles of dirty underwear on all the desks, visit our website, WNPR.org. And now, back to Colin. 
So uh, we're going to do one more segment here about Watergate uh, as we um, head down the home stretch here. We want to thank uh, Michael Schutz and his incredible book, Watergate in American Memory. Although there were certain things that were not available when Michael Schutz was writing that book, including uh, Wikipedia. Now, as Alan Yu, our old friend Alan Yu, who's listening right now in Hong Kong, uh, reminds us, there's now on Wikipedia uh, an entry that simply uh, chronicles all of the scandals, 200 scandals with gate suffixes that have at least been nominally uh, applied to them. Uh, so <laughs> so Michael Shredson, first of all, I commend that Wikipedia entry to your attention. Uh, I'll try to get you a free copy of Thomas Malin's Iran-Contra novel when it comes out. And I want to thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. My pleasure. All right. We're going to uh, move along here to uh, Ed Gray and uh, Thomas Mallon will, I think, have some things to say to him and they'll have some things to say to each other. Ed Gray is the co-author of In Nixon's Web, A Year in the Crosshairs of Watergate. Uh, his father, uh, Pat Gray, well, I've said several times who he was. But let me read from a quote from uh, one of my old friends, a man I've come to think of as a friend anyway, uh, Lowell Weicker, who's talking about Pat Gray. And he says uh, he's talking about the, just living down by the shore. It brings up for me the memory of Pat Gray, who was a submarine commander and who lived up here in eastern Connecticut. Gray was a decorated war hero. He commanded a submarine when, believe me, a submarine was dangerous, dangerous duty. He was a great man and a great hero. He was used, and his life was ruined by Richard Nixon uh, when he appointed Pat, Patrick Gray as temporary head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and used him in that role to suppress evidence uh, of the Watergate scenario. So, um, Ed Gray, I, I'm assuming that the words of, of Senator Weicker uh, resound for you and, and, and are very close to the way that that you understand the story of your father and of Watergate. Well, that's true. I mean, Lowell uh, Weicker and my dad were were, were great friends, um, apart from uh, the relationship they had uh, during the Watergate, uh, and remained great friends for great times. So for a long time, I, I was really pleased to hear Lowell still repeating that. But um, <clears throat> you know what what Lowell said is uh, about my father's getting involved with Richard Nixon, uh, essentially ruining his professional life, was certainly exactly what my father said. Um, it's what he said during the, the entirety of the book um, that, that uh, I finished for him after he died in 2005. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't have much more to say about that, except <clears throat> that, you know, I mean, the, the, the problem is, as... as you know, you and 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 Michael and and Thomas have been discussing today is that you know there, the Watergate itself is a sort of a, a trope. It's it's a it's a narrative uh, that exists at in various levels of memory and and importance for all of us. And, and you know, but you know, the problem is uh, you know as, as you were dis- discussing, um, what about the people ten years from now? Is it you know, or the people who you know, your your thirty eight year old staffer today? I mean, what you know, when you say Watergate um, and the lessons thereof that we, that we need to carry with us, um, you know, how do you how do you boil that down? I mean, what is you know, what's the you know the sort of elevator pitch version of the Watergate story uh, for somebody today? I asked my 24-year-old son uh, that question, and I was actually surprised at, at 
the amount of grasp he had of it. I, it I was more than I would have guessed that he had. Um, but I think it's a great question. Before we get to that question, though, I want to go back to Thomas Mallon for a second, because I, I do think this is a place where you and Ed Gray kind of touch. Um, you overlap, at least Correct me if I'm wrong, Thomas Mallon, but there's kind of a sense of Watergate uh, in your novel uh, that it could take a relatively benign person, uh, a relatively you know morally sound person, and somehow or other um, whirl him around uh, like a whirlwind in, until he was something else, or at least he was going to be forever understood as something else. I mean, did were you able to think deeper into that question, how it could be the case that people who were, who were not necessarily bad people or inclined towards criminal or illegal activities wound up doing things like that? Oh, I think that happens to people who uh, get involved in political life all the time. Uh, I think it's part of the nature of power. It's part of the nature of uh, the combat of politics. Um, there were uh, people um, – I mean, we haven't mentioned Sam Irvin, who was the head of the Senate committee that investigated Watergate in 73. And one of the early witnesses before the Irvin committee was a young man named Hugh Sloan, who was the treasurer for the committee to reelect the president, creep as it was called. And Sloan had uh, gotten enmeshed in what was going on uh, – the finances of it, and uh, was uh, called to testify and was um, rather, uh, you know, upset and regretful about uh, things that had happened. He was very quickly in over his head, and he told what had happened. Uh, and Senator Irvin, uh, you know, who quoted scripture a lot, uh, said to him, uh, basically kind of absolved him and said, you know, an honest man is the noblest work of God. And um, Sloan um, uh, came away from Watergate fine. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to imply he did anything uh, seriously wrong, but I, I think people who um, uh, what my old mentor Mary McCarthy used to call the conflict between excited scruples and inertia of will uh, occurs all the time uh, in politics when uh, you know that what you're about to do is wrong, but there are tremendous pressures on you to do it. I think you even see that uh, in somebody who uh, ultimately is a much more, I suppose, sinister figure like Howard Hunt, uh, whom I actually knew slightly uh, toward the end of his life. And Hunt, um, who had been a CIA agent uh, and then became one of the plumbers and then became one of the architects of the break-in, uh, Hunt uh, did some service to his country. Uh, some genuine service to his country uh, early in his life and uh, as time went on uh, became incapable of making distinctions as to what was legal, what was illegal, what was proportionate, what was disproportionate and uh, became involved you know, in some spectacular wrongdoing. But I even Hunt, I don't think, is this uh, black and white figure, uh, this figure of pure uh, villainy and certainly from a novelist's point of view, um, that's the kind of person you become interested in writing about. And I think I need to break in here. Yeah, go ahead. Pretty quickly. Um, you know, you describe uh, people like Hugh Sloan and Howard Hunt as those who got caught in the whirlwind of, 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 this, of these events and, and um, became either consciously or subconsciously uh, a person they weren't. That was not my father. Uh, the, the problem he faced is that he did not go along with that. You know, when, when, when I didn't mean to imply that if you took no, that no, as an I, implication. I, I just yeah. wanted to really clarify it because because mm -hmm. it, it's it's an enduring false echo, if you will, uh, from the Watergate that um, 
you know, my father was one of the 12 or 13, I forget which, people who, whose faces were on the dust jacket of the original hardcover edition of All the President's Men. Every single other one of those people either pled guilty or was convicted of a Watergate crime. My father wasn't even indicted. He, he, you know, his problem was that the Nixon people who were all involved in, in the cover-up couldn't make him do, as the director of the FBI, what they wanted him to do. Although the enduring image of your father, for better or worse, is pro- if there if an image endures, it, it may well be the image of him at the fireplace in Stonington, burning these things from Howard Hunt's file. Not all of them having to do with Nixon. Many of them, apparently, we think having to do with the previous presidents, Kennedy well, and, well, and Johnson. So, how did he explain that moment? I'm sorry for asking you that question. No, no I can, there's I can, so little time too. Well, but go ahead. no, no, I know I can explain it uh, very carefully because. You know, they, it was a, a subject of a, of a major criminal investigation. They, they, uh, they thought that, that uh, the prosecutors thought that he might have committed a crime. And after years of investigation, literally, they determined, no, he hadn't. Because those documents that were given to him by John Ehrlichman and John Dean uh, early in, in the investigation, after, after Dean had opened Howard Hunt's safe in the White House and, and pulled out all this Watergate stuff and gave that to the FBI, he also pulled out some other documents, which apparently were forgeries of fake uh, cables in, from the JFK era um, and, and some other um, sort of false stuff that they had dug up on Teddy Kennedy and Chappaquiddick. Um, they pulled those things out, put them in sealed envelopes, and gave them to my father and said, you know, we've, we've complied with the, with the investigation. We've turned over all of the Watergate-related stuff to your agents in the FBI, but this stuff has absolutely nothing to do with the Watergate. This is, this is true national security, State Department, classified stuff, and it can never see the light of day. My father, who had been privy to the highest levels of secrecy in the, in the government uh, for, for many years prior to this, understood what that meant. Mm-hmm. That meant that that stuff should never see the light of day. So he did. He took it to Connecticut eventually, only because he didn't realize he was so new in the FBI at the time. He didn't know that the red wastebasket under, under his desk was a burn box. So instead of throwing him in there, he took him with him up to Connecticut and burned them up there. Ed Gray, we're going to have to stop there. I know this is a much longer story, and I apologize uh, for our lack of time. Uh, Ed Gray is the co-author of the book In Nixon's Web in the Crosshairs of Watergate. So many thanks to Thomas Mallon. Can't wait for the Iran-Contra book. And to Michael Shudson, thanks to Betsy Kaplan for pulling all this together. Kyone Wolf for making us sound good. Don't let the sun go down on me, yeah. Mr. President, the tape is still rolling. I know. I'm hoping Elton John and I can do a duet. And maybe you should sing, sorry seems to be the hardest word. What did you say? Nothing.